Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us on this Labor Day weekend. Hope you had a great summer. I did. I learned five things, and I want to share them with you this morning. I learned, first of all, that I'm settled. Second of all, I'm focused. Third of all, I'm courageous. Fourth, I'm replaceable. And fifth, as Brad just sung, I am desperate. Those are the five things I believe God taught me this summer. And so I wanted to open up God's Word with you in various passages and talk a little bit about each of those five things that I feel like the Lord spoke to me about. Settled, focused, courageous, replaceable, and desperate. That's what God did with me. Now, I didn't start out the summer that way. In fact, I started out the summer kind of like toast, as I said in my, uh, my uh, email blurb this weekend. I felt a lot like John Ortberg in his book. Many years ago, he wrote a book called The Life You've, Ever, You've Always Wanted. John's a great friend and was on staff with him at Willow Creek while he was writing this book. And, and he begins this book with this idea. I am disappointed with myself. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. Am I missing out on the life I was appointed to live by God? Is the question John asked himself as he began a book to describe the ways in which to see God work in his life to rebuild the life that he's always wanted to live. And so I started this summer asking the very same question, wondering, am I really there? Has it happened? Do I even have the potential, I would add? And when I thought of the word potential, I thought of the word possibility. And it reminded me of something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Jesus is talking, and he's talking about how hard it is to get into the kingdom of God. And he uses this illustration. He says, it's easier, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And Jesus is using this metaphor and this strong language to describe that it's really hard to get into the kingdom of God when you are so focused on yourself and the things that you have. Your riches actually can prevent you from the greatest thing that you desire. And so this over-dependence on the wrong things is like the camel who can't squeeze through the eye of the needle. And then he says these words in verse 26. Ah, with man, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. It's possible. The life you've always wanted is possible. And that kind of became a mantra for me this week, this whole summer, is that it's possible, it's possible, it's possible. I may feel really burnt out. I may feel disappointed. I may feel like I'm not there yet. I may feel like I'm not at the place that I should be. And if, we're, if I was really, really honest with you this morning, as one of my dear friends pointed out after my first message, the first time that I went through this message this weekend, this morning at the beach, and he pointed at me, he says, now be honest, be honest. Many of us thought you were done. In fact, I think I reached a point where I was so scared because I didn't know that I could continue on. I was frightened. I was filled with anxiety. Because I really wondered, can I keep doing this? Can I keep going? Do I have to fake it? Or is there something really there to give? 
I'm just being honest. That's where I started. It's not where I ended up, thank God. I learned these things, and as John describes in this book, which is outstanding, it's a great read, he says that really life is all about what Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, transformation. The word is morpho, and in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the, the idea that there's an inward transformation that can actually happen, that God can do this inner transformation. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul adds to this idea that there's an inner transformation going on in your life. It's going to take time. It's going to take some deliberate choices on your part. But there's going to be an inner change that's going to happen. And that's the key to the Christian life is this inner transformation. And in Romans chapter 8, 29, it says that all things work together for good for those that love God that are called according to his purposes, that he not only predestined you, but that he also is now transforming you, it says, sum morpho, transforming you into the image of his son. In other words, the goal is to shape you into the image of Christ. That's the goal. So what's going to take? How are you going to get there? Do you feel like that process is underway or something happened that has maybe prevented that from happening, or it's stalled right now, or you're just at a really low point. Maybe you're at a high point. But I just recall early in the summer, I feel like I was at a really low point. And that transformation, that changing, wasn't happening. So I picked up another book, replenished by another friend, Lance Witt, who I worked for down at Saddleback Church, and he wrote this book to pastors, and I've shared with uh, a couple quotes out of it early, uh, kind of the middle of the summer, and he leaves the book with a few quotes, and he talks about the fact that 1,500 pastors burn out a month in America. 1,500, they leave the ministry, gone. That's a lot. 80%, the statistics show, are discouraged in their role. 50% would do something else if they could. Those are strikingly high numbers, in my, my opinion. Really high. And yet I felt like I, that resonated with me. And then he says these words. He said, emotional health and vitality and spiritual health are like having good set of shock absorbers for your soul. That you, you have to build emotional health and spiritual health. It's the interior that counts. And then he says later in the book, he says, we have neglected the fact that pastor's greatest leadership tool is a healthy soul. It's true for you as well. It's true for your leadership. It's true for your ability to lead your kids, to develop other people, to impact and impart your life to someone else. The greatest tool you have is a healthy soul. Are you focused on that? Our concentration on skill and technique and strategy has resulted in de-emphasizing the interior life and the outcome is an increasingly number of men and women leading our churches who are emotionally empty and spiritually dry. And then he shares Titus chapter 2, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul is talking to Titus and he's asking and challenging Titus that in every way that you might make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Your job is to make God attractive. Now the word attractive is so interesting because the word attractive is cosmeo. And cosmeo means to set in order. If you are not set in order, you're not attractive. A disordered life is not an attractive life. 
And so reordering your life, setting things in the right priorities, working on the interior, developing your life makes you attractive and God's teaching attractive to others. Makes a lot of sense. And so I changed things up this summer, relocated, did some things differently. I realized if I just kept doing the same thing the same way, I'm going to get the same results. So I didn't go on to the office as much, worked out of the library, worked in the community, met with people, did some reading, reflected, wrote, and sometimes I really just did nothing. I had to. I knew that I was so desperate that I had to change up something or I would not get refueled and replenished. And so I had to find some time where I wasn't busy and I wasn't distracted. And, I, and, and, and it, it forced me. It forced me to just do a few things. And here they are. And this is what I learned. Number one, I got settled. And here's, here's the longer explanation. Here's, this is what I wrote in my notes. Slowing down, changing your pace, building space into your schedule is not idleness or slothfulness or wastefulness, but absolutely imperative to your long-term spiritual and mental health. And yet for many of us, we run so fast, we're so busy, that we think that's how we identify with success and spiritual vitality. Just do more. Work harder. Get busier. And in fact, slowing down and changing your pace and building space in your life, scheduling in that time can actually change things. I was reading Streams in the Desert, August 16, 2017, and the writer references Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. It's so hard to wait patiently for the Lord. That caught my, mind, that my attention. And, and she writes, waiting is much more difficult than walking. For waiting required patience, and patience is a rare virtue. Many of us are lacking the strength we so desire, but God gives us complete power for every task he calls us to perform. He does, but you have to wait. You have to wait for it. Waiting is keeping yourself faithful to his leading. This is the secret of strength. And anything that does not align with obedience to him is a waste of time and energy. The hardest thing to do is to stand still and watch the great roaring tides of life from shore. Do you ever feel that way? Doing more is not better. And I felt a sense of anxiety come upon me this summer related to my pace and my spiritual dryness in my inner life. And I felt like this, this building that Lance Wick describes that he watched, this skyscraper, and I shared this middle of the summer with you, the skyscraper that was scheduled to be demolished and, and the crushing ball, the wrecking ball would hit it and hit it again and hit it again and the, and the building remained right where it was. And again, it would hit it and crush it again. And then all of a sudden, the final hit, the building, all at once comes crushing down. The entire thing. And he writes, this is exactly what happens in our interior life. 
It's the systemic dismantling of your interior. And at one final blow, your entire life comes crushing down. If you do not pay attention to it. If your interior life is being dismantled piece by piece, pay attention. Wake up. Listen. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. I remember I caught myself, and I caught myself a couple times in conversation where there was a lot of cynicism, and I knew something was wrong. I was in this one meeting. We're talking about all these great things that are going on, and, and, and we were talking about the Hume Lake surge. I call it now the Hume Lake surge. We have now three big surges at the river. It's Christmas Eve. The other is Easter. And now right in the middle of the year is the Hume Lake surge. And all these people showed up, and it was so awesome to see all these wonderful people and their families and the high schoolers, and, and they brought their friends and their kids, and, and it was packed from what I was told. It was amazing. And then next week, we were back to our normal size. And I remember making a comment like, yeah, we'll just go back to our regular size. And, and everyone around the table is like, no, God's doing something new. Something exciting's happening. New ground. And yet I couldn't see it. Because I wasn't waiting. I was trying to push forward. I wasn't settled. Because I wasn't waiting. And the strength to be able to see and respond with positive responses and optimism and belief and hope and confidence and faith was not there in that moment. And I realized, as the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He brought me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise. Many will see and fear and will trust the Lord. How blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Notice the change in perspective of the psalmist. I waited patient for the Lord. He lifted me. Finally, he lifted me up out of the miry clay. And now with my voice, I proclaim, I trust him. He is worthy to be praised. There is a change in perspective. I was skin diving with my son. We do a little father-son event every year. We spend a couple days toward the end of the summer together to connect. And this one was really important. He's getting married. All three of my children will be married by November. And I'm excited about it, but I'm also sad. So this was a really important few days in my life. And we went off to Catalina. We changed it up. We were going to go to Yosemite and you know, and thankfully we didn't go because they closed Yosemite because of the fires. We went to Catalina, took all of our snorkeling and skin diving gear and some great spearfish, spear guns. And we were going to go diving. And we dove for three days and had an amazing time. Some 30, 40 foot, some 60 foot dives. Uh, got some great fish. It was really fun. A lot of fun. But I remember sitting on the top and my son was down about 60 feet and He's down there going after the yellowtail, and it's deep. That's really deep to free dive, and it freaks me out. And I'm up at the surface. I'm waiting for him to come up, and he's down there for over a minute. He's down there, and I can't do that. And, I, and I'm in the surge, and I'm just going up and down, up and down in the surge, up and down, and I'm just freaking out, and my mind's going, where is he? When's he coming up? When's he coming? And I'm more focused on that 
instead of just staying calm. And I got the times that I stayed calm and I dove down and I got down 30, 40 feet and all of a sudden you can see everything and it's beautiful and there's fish and it's just gorgeous down there. It's a change of perspective. And the change of perspective, rather than being tossed and driven by the surge and up on the top of the surface of the water and feeling freaked out and wondering what's going on, you get down, go deeper, you begin to see what God's really doing in your life. You got to wait. You got to trust. That's what you have to do. And this is what the psalmist learned to do. The second thing I learned this summer is uh, I'm focused. I'm more focused. And here's, here's the explanation. My identity cannot be found in the church with Jesus. It, it can't be found in anything else other than Jesus. If it is, it's disastrous. One writer says, if ministry, church attendance, giving influences my identity, I will experience a disgraceful sense of depletion, disappointment, and discouragement. I, I would feel worthless as someone who has lost their influence. And, 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 and here, here's the test. Here's the test. I arrive late to the post-Hume Lake baptismal massive service surge. Bill was preaching. You guys were baptizing and everybody was involved. And it was a, people were down there till about one o'clock in the afternoon enjoying one another and the excitement of what God did with our, our kids and in, in, in the summer camp program. And they all came back, and we baptized, and, and I showed up pretty late because I do a swim. I do a peer-to-peer, two-mile swim every year that same weekend. And it's, it's, it's important for me and my connection with my swim team and, and the men and women that I connect with relationally in our community. And, and so I was off doing that, and then I try to rush back, and, and I usually make it back by the baptisms. Well, I was much later, and yet people were still there. And I was blown away to see so many people hour and a half after the service was over. And I walk in, and there's Jack Hollis. You know Jack Hollis. Jack walks right up to me, and he goes, Todd, great to see you. Aren't you so excited? The best service of the year was absolutely flawless, and it happened without you. And I thought, yes, I am. I really am. I'm at a point where I want to say, yes, I really am. It's exciting to see. Bill and Matt and Tommy and April, James and the staff. Just everybody pulled it off and it was amazing. It's a, it's a team effort. It's what our church is about. It's all of you. It's our leaders. You inviting families. It's way beyond one person. And the healthiest thing for me is to be able to focus not on church attendance, not my influence, not my position, not the fact that I wasn't there and it was the best service, but Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus is what I kept hearing. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes these words. And they're very sharp words to the church. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In the person of Jesus Christ is the full divinity. It's the full power. It's the full observation of all that God is, is in Jesus. And in him, 
you have been made complete. The fullness of the deity has made you complete. It's, you're not complete in what you do or who you are or how much money you have or your significance or importance or how many friends or who your friends are or what you look like. You are complete in Christ, in one thing. Therefore, focus on Him. And He is the head over rule, over all authority. And in Him you are also, it says, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The Apostle Paul's talking about, in a metaphorical way, the, the, the idea that he's, he's working at your heart. Circumcision is an idea of cutting away. It's the cutting away of the things in your life that you I have identified with that has given you significance. And he wants that removed so badly. He's not going to give up on you. He's going to remove that so that your identity is purely in Christ, focused on him. It's got to be. I wrote a couple things down. I wrote down the removing of a false identity, the removing of a past identity, and the removing of an inferior identity. Some of us have a false identity. It's based upon something that's not even in Scripture. Church size, giving, who you are, your position, all those things that relate to me. For you, it could be anything. Anything that you have put your soul identity into. How you identify yourself. What you value about yourself. And when you begin to change that, and God does his work, and he cuts that away, and that false identity, and what's staring you in the face is your completeness in Christ. It's not a bad thing. I'm complete in Christ. You, you, you take that out the door today with you. And the second thing I wrote is past identity. It's a past. It's a past. It's no longer here. It's gone. The past is gone. That's the wonderful news of the gospel, is it not? The fact that this morning, the past is now gone. God has separated you from his sins as far as the east is from the west. There is no past identity. You have a new identity in Christ. The third thing I wrote down is an inferior identity. Because of where you are and your status in life, you, you may think that. But the most valuable people to God are people that look to Jesus. And they find their identity in Jesus no matter whether they're in a hospital room, they're in a prison, they're behind a desk working and serving other people, or whether you're in a profession like a doctor or a lawyer or a business person, or you're a mom or a dad. The third thing I learned this summer is I'm courageous. And, and here it is. Go after the real issues and settle disputes and misunderstandings, concerns. By humbling yourself to listen without judgment and offer forgiveness and grace without holding bitterness for the past. You got to be courageous to do that. I, I was reading in Replenish, and Lance writes in one of his chapters, if you don't resolve issues and instead sweep them under the carpet, it will get worse, not better. Went to the next chapter. Well, I'm off with that one. I'm not going to deal with that. 
I know there's something nagging me right now. I know a relationship is not right, but I'm just going to sweep that over the, under the carpet. It's going to get worse, not better. It's going to, it just, he kept, it just kept coming back to me. I, I, I picked it up, read it again, and I realized I have to pick up the phone, set the appointment, had the conversation, thinking it's over. There's misunderstanding. It's never going to be resolved. It's amazing what happens in your mind if you give it time. If you just continue to dwell on that and you don't deal with it, it gets worse, not better. It really does. It gets worse in your mind and you make it out to be worse. I love my brother. My brother's amazing in my life. I told him about the situation and and he's like, he just tells me, he tells it to me just the way it is. He, He doesn't care. He can't stop being my brother, so he's just going to tell me the truth. He says, you're worrying about something that may never actually come to pass. You don't even know the truth of the situation. It hasn't even happened yet. Why put yourself through all that stress? He gave me about a five-minute lecture on this, and I just heard it over and over again. Okay, but I'm worried about it. I'm bothered about it. It's, it's, this is a bad situation. This is a close friend. This is an important relationship. All relationships are important to resolve. In fact, that's what God's word says in Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. James chapter 1, verse 19. We are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Listen, listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 reminds us in the first eight verses that if you've had a grievance against a brother or a sister, why are you going to the courts, Paul's asking. Why are you using secular society when you have a faith and a confidence in Christ and a power that's far greater than that? Why are you doing that? Instead, don't you see in your community somebody wise who will be able to help you settle this grievance or dispute. In other words, go to the person. Get help. Figure it out. That's what God's word, and I did. The fourth thing I learned this summer is I'm replaceable. It was a good reminder all summer with all of our teachers, Bill and James and Matt and Tommy, Jazz, Brooke, Janie and Denise, we've got an amazing wealth of teachers that know God's word. And many more. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the spiritual maturity of the church. And the way he describes the spiritual maturity, this is what he says. He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to you. And he's saying, it's time to leave the elementary principles and the foundational truths and press on to greater, deeper meat and be able to communicate that with others. That's our role in the church. We are to learn God's word and be able to communicate it and encourage others with God's word. That's a teacher. In fact, I was reminded when a group of women got together this summer and had an event, and Brooke Andrews, one of our speakers, 
spoke at this event. She was one of the speakers. And I said, what did you speak about? What did you talk about? She says, Ephesians. I really love Ephesians. What did you specifically talk about? Well, all throughout Ephesians, she said, there's this description of the body of Christ and how we're all connected and interconnected. We're all members of the body and we're to be unified. So it's all about the unity of the community. And yet, what I find in there is that each of us has our own story, but our own story is only relevant as it relates to the larger story of the greater community of the church. And I thought, that's profound. That's amazing. I haven't stopped thinking about the idea of how each of us and our stories and our lives are meaningful because they fit into a larger story of our church, of how we're connected and related and, and, and our, our relationships and life experiences and the difficulties and traumas and hardships and how we work together and how we're rooting for each other. That's the body of Christ. It was a brilliant message from one of our great teachers. I'm replaceable. And it's a good thing. The fifth thing I, lear- thing I learned is I'm desperate. I'm desperate. It's very easy to be a Bible expert, remain a novice, and allowing the Bible to penetrate your heart and life. It's like a rose garden, and you, you love roses, and you have these beautiful roses, and you clip them and prune them, and you feed them, and you water them, and you take care of them, and you're busy about the roses, but you never have time to sit and enjoy your roses. Just to sit and observe and go, what beautiful roses have been produced? That's the idea of not simply studying the word, listening, but also letting it penetrate your heart and going deep. Does that make sense? I mean, spending that time so that something happens deep within you. Isaiah chapter 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It says, it will not return to me empty. Isaiah 55, 11. The word of God goes out and does not return void. It accomplishes what it's set, it set out to do. And I've known this verse. I have thought about this verse. I've memorized this verse. And yet I never read the next section. I didn't see what the word of God is really doing. It waters it waters your life. It comes, it comes down like rain or snow onto your life. It, it, it penetrates your heart. But does anything happen? It, it does not return void. But what does that mean? It doesn't return void. So I look further and here it is. It says this. For you will go out with joy and be led with forth in peace The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Worship. You'll become a worshiper. Your your life will be a, a life of worshiping God, honoring God, giving glory to God, standing up and exalting his name because the word of God has penetrated your heart. You will worship. The second thing is, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come. 
And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come. Really? So thorns are replaced with cypresses and, and nettles with myrtle. In other words, God is going to do a spiritual transformation when the word of God goes deep into your heart and changes you. If you allow it to penetrate your heart and you sit quietly and look and listen and wait and allow it to go deeper and to observe and desire all the things that we are, 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 are recommended to do in relationship to God's word. Well-trained seminary graduate, good Bible teaching, but no heart for Jesus, one author writes, is a recipe for disaster, and so it is true. I remember at one point in my ministry at Saddleback Church, I was asked to lead a, a midweek, a thousand people would show up, and they would have questions about the Bible. And I would stand with my Bible in front of a thousand people, and all I had was my Bible, and they would ask questions, and there were, there were microphones all throughout the audience, and I was mic'd, and I, mean, I would answer them. And then we'd go to the next question, and the next question, and we'd go and do this for like 30 to 40 minutes. And I'm telling you, I was excited. I was pumped. Now, I kind of knew where people were going. And people always ask about evil and suffering. They always want to know about the dinosaurs. They want to know about faith and science and the relationship between them. I mean, I know a lot of the questions that people are already going to answer, ask. And so I had done some research, but then I'd get a lot of others. And I'd have to kind of think on my feet. And, and the Word of God, I had it at my fingertips. And I felt so good about that. And what I've realized over the years, and especially this summer, is that easily I could become a Bible expert and remain still a novice in allowing the Word of God to penetrate my heart. Because sin, sin is so blinding. It's self-justifying if it's left unchecked. Either you acknowledge your sinful actions because of the penetration of God's word, he wants to go deep into your heart, or you justify your past works of righteousness. You do your own work. And it's blinding, and it's hard on us. And I realized I need help, because the second thing I wrote is because of the blinding power of remaining sin, self-examination is a community project. We need to do it together. We need to be together. It's what we need. We need to help each other. I need to sit among the roses. But sometimes I just feel like, just keep on trimming, keep on trimming, self-justifying, self-justifying, because sin's so blinding. I'm fine. Just justify it. It's fine. And yet... When I stop and I realize the word of God is speaking to my heart, all of a sudden what happens is I'm beginning to examine within the context of community what's really going on. So that's what I learned this summer. I feel like I'm not there yet, but I'm refreshed and I'm encouraged. And I really do believe these are five lessons that God spoke to me about Here's your homework. What's God's been speaking to you about? What happened this summer in your life? I mean, really, think about the life experiences you had. Think about the hardships. Think about some of the hard, traumatic things that you went through. Think about some of the exciting things that you experienced. The emotional things. What has God been teaching you? 
Would you do that this week? Would you just write down a few things? I want to encourage you to do that. Capture it. Capture it. Think about it. Think about it hard. And let the Holy Spirit speak to you and teach you and help you understand what God's been working on your heart about. He can do that. There's some things you learned. Maybe it's out of one of the messages this, this last summer. Great messages. Maybe it's something you read. That's your homework. Now, one more piece of homework, if you have a chance. I want you to look up an article. And it's from the New York Times, June of 2016. And in June of 2016, on June 24th, Thomas Brooks wrote an article called, I am on the, excuse me, out, um, ah, I missed it. Sorry, just give me, give me a second here. I have to rephrase this. I'm on the out of the edge of the inside. It's called the edge of the inside. The article is called the edge of the inside in the New York Times. June 24th, 2016, Thomas Brooks. Because next week, I want to talk about the church. Out of Matthew chapter 5, Salt and Light. And I want to refer to this article. And I'd love for you to read it. And it's describing three kinds of people. Insiders, outsiders, and those that are on the edge of the inside. It's a unique perspective. And I think God has put our church on the edge of the inside. 16. Let's pray. So, Father, as we head to communion, we are reminded. We're reminded that this whole process of inner work and transformation and life in the Spirit and finding our completeness in you, Jesus, can only happen because you went to the cross, not us. We didn't self-justify ourselves. We didn't die to ourselves. We died because you died. And we see, Father, now so clearly that as we come to the table, we are coming to a place to remember your death and your sacrifice. The shedding of your blood, your body on our behalf so that we might live, so that we might be transformed. So lead us there. Help us remember, and I pray that the work of transformation would continue in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you're ready...